The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Colossians 3, we'll be looking at verses 16 and 17 this morning, but I'd like to begin reading back in verse 12. What you're about to hear really is the word of God. It comes to you from his throne and falls on the ears of his people whom he's bought with his blood, so please hear them. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if One has a complaint against another. Forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, we've come to the end of another year in our lives, and uh, there are some things that uh, accompany this time of year which are uh, in variable degrees of seriousness or importance. There's some things that we consider this time of year where we go, you know what, next year I want to weigh... I'll let you fill in the blank. Likely a smaller number. Maybe it's a bigger one for some of the few of us. But for if you're like me, you're you're looking at it going, I need to rethink some life decisions. Uh, So there's some frivolous things like that where you're like, you know what? There's not a lot of importance there. But hopefully, as as a Christian, as someone who's got eternity written on their hearts, we would use this time of year to reflect in ways that would be uh, beneficial towards moving ahead. It, it really does seem like just moments ago, we ushered in 2023. And for those of you who are older, I'm sure you could tell those of us who are younger, you have no idea how fast that year went. And next year has, a, has, well, the probability of being uh, a little faster and a little faster. And while we look at our life and we consider the days that God gives us, I do not know how many days he has allotted you. But this I can tell you, you have less of them today than you did a year ago. And so the question that, I I don't want it to hang over our minds in any kind of morbid sense, although if you look at the 
way that word came to us, it does mean in a deathly kind of sense. But I don't want you to look at it that way. I want you to, to just as a, as a wise man or as a wise woman, make peace with the reality that life is short, it is fleeting, and we only have so much time. We only have one life to live. And so the question that should really be in the front of our mind isn't how much longer do I have? It's what will I do with the time that I have left? How should I live those days? I forgot to look it up because it kind of uh, struck my mind as we were sitting there singing. Jonathan Edwards had, uh, among many resolutions, one that went something like this, resolved to live in such a way as I wish I would have lived when I come to the time of my death. Jonathan Edwards, and if you, looked at, if you look at his resolutions, there was like this day that hung over all of them, and rather than sapping his life of joy and direction and, and, and actually living a life of obedience, it actually gave his life that. He wanted to live not ignoring that there, his time was limited. He wanted to live knowing his time was limited. And that shaped his life. So I want to put that question to each and every one of us. The world, before we get to that question, the world wants to pretend as though it will live forever. The Christian knows better. How will you use the days that God has given you? Some of you will have more days than others, but all of us, if you're here, you've been given some days, and how do we live those? I want to propose to you that the way that we ought to live those few fleeting days should be governed by, well, several things, but let's just consider two uh, pieces that have come to us from church history. The first would be resolution number six uh, from Jonathan Edwards. It goes something like this, resolved to live with all my might while I live. How should the Christian live their life? How should the Christian spend the few fleeting, vaporous days that God gives them boldly, courageously, with all the strength that's in them? That's how the Christian should go through this life, not timidly, not tentatively, not fearfully, boldly, with all your might. There's a second thing that should govern it. That would come to us by part of the answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. While you live with all your might, while indeed you then do live, live knowing this, I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Those two pieces, if you could hold resolution six with all your might in one hand and you could hold the answer to the Heidelberg one in your other hand and say, Lord, with however many days you give to me, let them be lived 
full of might and courage and with the governing knowledge, I don't belong to me. I belong to you. If you can hold both of those in your hands, Christians, you will come to the day of your death having lived as you wish you would have lived when you come to die. Simply put, if I could steal one title to to hang both of those thoughts on, it would come to us from the book of Colossians. It would come from verse 11 of chapter 3 that Christ to his people and in the lives of his people would be all and in all. That would be the goal of the Christian life, that Christ be all and in all that we do. And we want to consider this under two headings uh, this morning as we look at verses 16 and 17. The first is this, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly, or the word of Christ dwelling As verse 16 opens up in chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, Paul writes by the inspiration of the Spirit, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now as we consider that, we'd have to ask ourselves just a few questions while looking at the text. And the first would be this, what does it mean when it says the word of Christ? Before I can get to the details of uh, what is it doing in dwelling in me, I I should probably know first, what is the word of Christ? And some would uh, look at it and interpret it something like this. The word of Christ is that message about Christ uh, summarized and kind of encapsulated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, The interpretation goes something like this. May the gospel of Jesus Christ dwell in me richly. The words about him dwell in me richly. Now, is that a possible meaning? I I think it's very possible. I think it's a really good one. The other alternative is that by word of Christ, it means the words that Christ would speak or the words that come from Christ. And that would be the the words that are found in your Bible. You might say the red letter ones or the black letter ones. All of them, regardless of color, belong to the Lord Jesus Christ as he sits upon his throne and by his spirit gives his people his word. You might say, well, which one is it? Is it Jesus speaking or is it the words about him? And I, I, It's this time of year, so I want my uh, potatoes and gravy and eat them too. So, I think it's both. Who does the word speak of? It speaks of Christ. Who does the word come from? It comes from Christ. So the word given by Christ and about Christ, that's what is to be dwelling in each and every one of us. So that's, that's the word. What does it mean then for it to dwell in me. The word he, that he uses means to kind of live in or to dwell in. He puts like in and house together, and that's the word he uses. How should my relationship with that word about Christ and from Christ, how does it dwell in me? Because there's a few different ways it could kind of dwell among you. I mean, there's a difference between the way well, I'd say, you know, if you had a son who was in his mid-30s playing video games and living in the basement, does he dwell with you? Yeah, and that's part of the problem. No, it, that, that's not 
what it means. It's not simply that he is a resident, like his address is, well, you. It would be a transforming and enlivening dwelling. It's to dwell in such a way that it changes the very course of the way that you live your life. You cannot live the same way with, as the word dwelling in you or not dwelling in you. If the word of Christ dwells in you, that will change the way that you live your life necessarily. Not accidentally, not optionally. It will change your life necessarily. As one author puts it, he says, the word of Christ is not merely to be present as a resident, but it's to be operative as a powerful force. And lest we missed his point, he adds to it a beautiful adverb. And I know you're like, man, adverbs are the best. They tell me how the verbs work their way out. That word is to dwell, not stingily. You're like, that's not even a real word. Not meagerly, richly. The word of Christ in the life of the believer is to dwell in a a richness and an overflowing nature. Far too many, and here's where we'll get into meddling, far too many Christians want just enough, just a little bit, enough to to kind of be an aromatic in my life so people kind of know I'm a Christian, or enough to avoid the really bad stuff in life, We should not be stingy in our acquisition of the word of Christ and in the way that it dwells. He offers it to you not in a beggarly way. There's a lavishness in this king's table. Why would you draw near to such a table, such as the word of Christ, and pick at it like a picky kid picks at his plate. We should do what we've been doing all since, well, November. Feasting upon the word of God. Seconds, thirds, sneaking forths when no one's watching. We should be imbibing the word in every avenue in its richness. Why? Well, because that's the way he's offered it to you. He's not a miser. He's a lavish king who offers his word to his children and says, come, eat, drink. Don't be stingy in your response to that. Don't go to him only in moments where you feel the pinch of need. Go again and again and again until Christ in his word dwells in the inner man and changes you. You and I desperately, desperately need the word of God in our lives. You might say, I've read it cover to cover. That's not dwelling in you richly. You need the word of God to come into your mind, into your heart, into the inner man, and to not just be known but for it to dwell. There's lots of people who know the Bible well, and yet it could not be said it dwells in them. They write commentaries, many of them. 
There's a lot of Christians who they, if you had a Bible trivia team, you were that person. You would want them on your team because their Bible trivia is great, but it's stuck up in here and has not dwelt down in here. Now, I think it goes without saying, but we'll say it. We make a practice of doing this. Can the word of Christ dwell in you richly if you do not know it? No. No, it can't. Does it necessarily dwell in you if you know it? No. You need more. You need to not just know the word of God. You need the word of God to be active in the way that you think. I'd I'd even say feel and believe. You and I have a, a, a nasty practice. We love to tell ourselves lies and to believe them. Some of them, it's like Thanksgiving or uh, Christmas. We have our favorite dishes. We have our favorite lies. And you and I need the word of God to come in in its truth and push the lies out of our thinking, out of our believing, out of our feeling, and for Christ in his word to ruin the heart alone. And that's not like a one-time thing. That's like a daily, moment-by-moment kind of endeavor. I am prone to loving lies. And I need his word to richly saturate the inner man. So that lies are seen for what they are. Lies and truth adorned in beauty is seated at the center of who and what I am. That is what it is to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So that, that, that's the what, and he puts it as a, as a command. This isn't an option like, hey, uh, you know, if you want this route as a Christian, the word of God could dwell in me. No, it's a command, Christian, do this. You might say it says let. That's because in English we don't like imperatives that work like this. It is a command. It is a kingly command that is also an invitation. You will never exhaust or find the bottom of the word of Christ. You may spend the entirety of your life and merely plumb the shallows of it and you will never find the edges. How does this come to dwell in me? It it should dwell in me. Well, how does it dwell in me? Well, he gives us the answer to that in two participles that then drive, I think, the rest of the verse. You might say, great, I love participles that drive verses. Verse 16, let it dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So this is part of his answer. It's not the whole of the answer. I said, how does that happen? It's not enough to tell me, let the word dwell in you and then leave me alone to figure it out. He tells you, all right, I'm going to spell it out for you, especially if you're like slow at getting some of these things. The word dwells in you richly through the means of teaching and admonishing. Now, we've seen this pairing before. We saw it all the way back in chapter 1, verse 28. Christ we proclaim Warning or admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Man, it sounds a lot like the the verse that's in front of us here. That we might present every man mature in Christ. It's the same thing, but Paul knows that we're kind of slow of hearing and slow of heart. 
we need to be told again and again. The word comes through teaching and admonishing, needs to be paired with wisdom, and that impacts and transforms a person in every area of their life to that end which is Christ-likeness. So how do we engage in teaching? How does teaching happen? Well, you are experiencing part of it right now. You can check that box. Word of Christ, richly, um, submit myself to teaching, boom, got it down. Part of what we do when we preach and we give ourselves to the preaching of the word is this very commitment. Why do we sit for 45 minutes? Who am I kidding? An hour. And listen to some guy talk. It's not because he's all that interesting. It's I have this desire that his word would dwell in me richly. And I've got this crazy notion that's grabbed a hold of my mind and I can't let it go. I've not arrived yet. And so I'm here every week and I give myself to the reading of God's word daily. Why? To check a box? To be a better Christian? No! I need to be transformed by the word of Christ. And so I give myself to the word teaching. And alarm bells and flashing red lights should be going off in my mind. If ever I come into such a place where I go, you know what, I think I've got it, I'm pretty good. Feels like it's dwelling richly. That usually means you have engaged in self-deceiving lies and are demonstrating your need for it to dwell ever more richly within you. Now, teaching would be positive instructive. Or instruction. Admonishing uh, would be more of a word of warning, things to avoid, or the, the negative side, do not do. Both of them are ways in which the word of God comes into our life, and there's times at which we see in God's word positively, do this, do that. We're like, excellent, I get it. And there's other times where God's word says, and this stuff over here, yeah, don't do that. And it warns us. Now, warning's not our favorite thing. I, I'm not super into, like, getting admonished. It's not my favorite thing in the entire world. Is it valuable, though? Exceptionally so. There are things at work in every life present here that have all of the possibilities of ruining you. Don't you think you should be warned about that? Don't you think that there are things in your life that you entertain or toy with or play with or just, Frank, give into that you need to be told again by God's word, you've believed a soul-destroying lie. And I know it says pleasure. I know it says satisfaction. I know it says fulfillment. You are being lied to. Do not engage in that thing or that set of ideas or you will be destroyed. And he adds to it that all of this should be done in wisdom. Should the word of God apply to the child of God in a certain time and set of circumstances, should that word be carefully administered to their life with wisdom? Yes. Have you ever, I don't want hands raised or testimonies given. Have you ever known a brother or sister who were like a child with a sharp sword, that sword being the word of God, and just hacked their way through parts of your life? 
not the most helpful or fun experience. Is it hard sometimes to know exactly when and how to give God's truth into someone's life? I think it is. Have you ever sat with someone who had multiple uh, opportunities and were trying to seek how can I be spent for God here, here, and here? Or if you've raised kids, you're like, I got a lot of questions. This thing did not come on the manual. And I think mine's broken. That takes wisdom to know. How, it sounds so easy. Raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You're like, excellent. Fear and admonition. And then life happens. Where you think like family worship. Wouldn't that be nice? Not in our house. <laughs> Chaos descends. And I need wisdom to know how on earth do we instruct our own wretched hearts, let alone a whole bunch of little wretched hearts. So it takes wisdom, and it's, it, it says we do it to one another. We ought to be sharing this around the church in our lives, both in formal settings like the one we have now, as well as very informal settings at home. And so I want to ask you an uncomfortable question. You might be like, I don't like these parts. Do you hunger for God's word? And there's a trick, there's a, there's a trick question at the end. And how is that showing itself in your life? Do you have a hunger for the word of Christ to dwell richly? If you say yes, there's a follow-up. How do I how can I see that? Are we just nursing? Just enough. The faucet of the word of Christ. Or are you saying, I cannot get enough. I'm a needy person. I need more of the word to transform me. It's a subtle, sneaky pride that says, I don't need God's word in its richness and fullness. It's a humility that says, I must have it. And I must have more of it. Not simply to be like some weird cut above the rest Christian, but because I'm so needy. Because I'm so quick to love lies. Because I'm so quick to waste my few precious days. I need a heart of wisdom. And therefore I hunger. Now, you may say, I don't hunger like I should. I bet every person could say that. But maybe we could pray a prayer that uh, A.W. Tozer prayed. I thirst to be made thirsty. I long to be filled with longing. Maybe, Christian, the place you start today is, Lord, I don't want you like I should want you. Help me want you. Begin the the transformation of my heart there. And then when I want you, as I maybe not as I fully should, but more than I do, then meet me with the abundance of your grace and do as you have said in your word. And dwell with me richly. Now, 
he shifts to what might seem like a very disjointed aspect. Like he goes from the word of God dwelling richly, teaching, admonishing, and then all of a sudden singing makes the list. Now we'll get to how this fits in in just a moment. But first let's look at, at what he is speaking of in ver- well, the second half of verse 16. We've covered a whole half of a verse already. I know we're flying. We teach and admonish in, wisdom, in all wisdom... And I know in the ESV, it says singing psalms and hymns. Now, the way that he actually says it is the next word is with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The the participle for singing comes later. I think he does this on purpose, and I actually think that it has some significance. So let's deal first with these three categories, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, or songs of a spiritual nature. This little phrase has been abused by almost everyone who's looked at it to try to cram their personal musical preferences and beliefs into the text of Scripture so they can say, look, I've got a verse for the weird view that I have. And so the first view held by some excellent godly people would say that by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he means the psalms, just the psalms. You might say, well, he said all other words besides the psalms. Well, they would look at it and say, these are types of psalms. There are psalm psalms, hymn psalms, and spiritual song psalms. That was harder to say than I thought it would be. And so we should only sing psalms at church. And there's an odd, I'm probably stepping on toes, but that's half the fun. There's some would then say we shouldn't use instruments. Even though the psalms they say we should only sing are full of, guess what, instruments and talk about new songs. But that's not, that's neither here nor there. They think Paul is saying, listen, the way that Christ dwells in you richly is to only sing the psalter, usually really old psalters, and never any peppers. Just the salt. Amen. God, <laughs> oh, that was bad. <laughs> the second view. <laughs> Yes, I'll get in less trouble with this one, but likely not. By Psalms, he means Old Testament Psalms. By hymns, he means New Testament hymns about Christ. They would look at Philippians 2, or they'd look at uh, Colossians 1. Or There's actually a few places in the New Testament where we'd say, you know what, that just looks, feels, walks differently. Maybe it's a hymn about Christ. So they'd say Old Testament Psalms, New Testament hymns about Christ that are in the found in the New Testament, and spiritual songs, or, and here's the weird one, spontaneous worship, which is like someone starts playing the guitar and you start singing something that you didn't write, but you're writing it on the fly, which seems like a good way to sing weird stuff. <laughs> the third view, obviously I don't think either of those, I'm, I'm similar to Brian, you know, the, you're like, get to the last one, because that's the one you think it is. So. Actually, this isn't the one I believe, but it's funny. Uh, so, by psalms, hymns, spiritual some, psalms, some would say, psalms are psalms, that's easy. Hymns are ye good old hymns of the faith. You know the good ones. They come in the old blue Baptist book. Not even the new one, the old one. I need some yees, these, and thous, thithers, and hath, and hath nots in there. Spiritual songs is that purple Maranatha songbook y'all love. And it's like a guilty pleasure. One to, you know some of those you shouldn't sing, but you're like, but they're good. I talked to Carolyn. I told her I was going to say this. I talked to Carolyn about some of these. I said, Carolyn, 
you know some of the songs that y'all love, you shouldn't love. I said, like in the garden. She's like, I love that one. I said, I know my mom does too, and I get in trouble if she heard me talking about it, which she will later. Don't sing that song. That's not what Paul's talking. Paul's not saying you can sing psalms, your favorite old hymns, some of the guilty pleasure. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. You might say, well, good grief, what does he mean? I'll side with one commentator by the name of Harris. It's impossible to differentiate these words with any precision for all denote singing praise to God. What does he mean by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? All kind of music that glorifies God. Now, there's sometimes we sing songs in church, not in this church, thankfully, that don't glorify God. I say, what are you singing? Well, I visited a church one time. Bless you. And we were new to, it was in New Zealand, so we were in a foreign country. We went to church, and the lineup, I'm not making this up, the lineup was... The Game of Love, Proud Mary, and Bad Moon Rising. Now, you might see that's from Creedence Clearwater Revival. That's a spiritual song. That talks to the soul of a man. No. We had walked in on a seeker service, and they decided that for worship you sing secular songs. Paul is not talking about those. The church throughout the ages has sung in all kinds of forms, meters, beats, styles, rhymes, and they've all, through the ages, that have accurately reflected God's truth, benefited the people of God, and I would argue have been a massive means of grace to drive the truth of Christ into the soul of a person. I need to point no further than what happened earlier in this very service. Was not the word of Christ driven into your heart? Have you not come into this place before Maybe you've been that weird one family that's only ever happened to, it's only you guys that struggle with it, but like you, you fought on the way to church. You know, I'd be like, I know, I heard of that family. <laughs> or it was tense getting out of the house. Or you decided for some odd reason that all chaos would break out. And you showed up to church, and you're like, I'm ready to worship God. And your cold heart was warmed. And the musicians were blessed with some really fantastic musicians. And even as they began, you went like, Lord, forgive my heart. And through the use of 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 the grace of singing, psalms and hymns and spirit, all kind of music, The word of Christ began again and afresh to dwell richly in you. Even if, so he gets to that we sing with gratitude to God. I believe that there's a double sense in which music works. So if you look at the last end of 16, does singing these things 
work to admonish and teach, or do they fulfill the, the second half of the verse, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God? You would say, I would see those as slightly different endeavors. One being this direction, one being this direction. Thankfulness in my heart to God or gratitude to God would go, well, vertically. Teaching and admonishing would kind of go, well, this way. And you might say, well, which one is it? It's both at the same time. You can even hear it in the music we picked for today. The ladies sang, do you feel the world is broken? And it's guys, it feels like we're getting talked to. We do. <laughs> do you know that all the darkness? Yeah, we do. Were we singing to God? And were we singing in the presence of one another and it working this way too? Yes. Are there times where it teaches and admonishes? Yeah. Our music teaches. Does it ever admonish? Oh, we sang one today. Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain the builders strive. Is that not a warning to everyone who has ears to hear? That if all my life is is human effort and me, I labor in vain and waste my life. That's a warning that went out from your brothers and sisters. And he's singing it in a nice way, but it was a warning nonetheless. Music is one of, I had a professor tell us, and as a young, enthusiastic, totally naive preacher in training, he, this was totally like devastating. He said, people will never walk out of a service humming your sermon." But what if it's really good? <laughs> he goes, don't worry, you're not in danger of that. Um, he said, but they'll hum the music, so be careful, preacher, what your people sing. He said, the music will do more to shape the theology of your people than your sermons will. That's a humbling thing to hear, but I don't think he's wrong. That's why we're so careful here at the church with what we sing. That's why we pour ourselves into excellence on all levels with regards to music. Why? It shapes us. And it shapes the word of Christ dwelling in us. So I'll just take this opportunity to say, so if you're here and we're singing and you're just mumming along, you are fighting against the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. If you're like, I'm not into singing, that's a huge bummer. You better get into it quick. Heaven's going to be a long time and a lot of singing. <laughs> Starting now. We wage war when we sing. On what? On our unbelief. On the lies we like telling ourselves. On cold hearts. On doubting and wayward Christians. Music is a wonderful gift from God given to the church to help his word dwell in us richly. It was recovered after a thousand year exile in the dark ages where only uh, priestly choirs could sing. Came back in and you might think, well, who would have brought back congregational singing? Well, stodgy old guys like John Calvin who we think were just these hard-eyed theologians 
he said of congregational singing to say why he brought it back. Our prayers and our hearts are cold. Let us warm them by singing. Calvin and Luther and others knew that music was a gift given to the people of God, not to priestly choirs. And so why do we sing and spend so much time singing? We sing because we are convinced we must worship God well and we must have the word of God dwelling in us richly. And so does it go vertically? Absolutely. Does it go horizontally? Yes. And does it do them both at the same time and wage war? Absolutely. And in the last eight minutes that we've got, point two. Because I know if we don't get all the blanks filled out, the kids and a few of the adults will bring me their kid notes paper. We need the name of Christ ruling. Now this one will be shorter. You're like, it had better be. Um, we need the word of Christ rule, or the name of Christ ruling. Look at verse 17. Uh, coming off the heels of the way that we worship God and the way that God's word then dwells in us through teaching, admonishing, and singing, verse 17 sums up not just this verse, the one before it, but I think the entire section. And whatever you do, now that is a sweeping statement. Just stop and think. Sometimes we run over phrases way too quickly. Everything you do. Stop and think of all that that would include. And in case you were like, I'm not sure what he means. He says, whether in word or deed, the stuff you say and the stuff you do, to use uh, Theological terminology. Actually, the way that he puts it, it shines even better in English. In word and work. From the big things in your life to the little. From the massive to the mundane. From the important to the menial. To life's biggest, greatest endeavors to laundry. And everything in between. Whatever you do. Another way you might say it, if we could have a Pastor Daniel expanded version, which no one would ever buy. In all the ways you spend the few fleeting days of your life. All the stuff that you spend your vaporous few moments on. You only have a few. One preacher said that days were like coins in your pocket and you don't know how many are in there, but each day you take one out and you know this, I have one less. Every word in this vaporous life, every deed, from when I get up to when I go to bed, and even when the kids wake me up in the middle of the night, those two, all of it, notice how he says it should be spent. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every piece 
of who and what you are. This would come under what we were speaking of in, uh, at the beginning. You do not belong to you. You belong to him, body and soul. So rather than just saying, like, my soul belongs to him, but what do I do with my body in this world? No, you are body and soul as a human being. He owns them both. So whatever you do in word or deed, do it all. Now, in English, we need to repeat the, the do it all, and we actually make it into an imperative, even though it's not quite there. You might say, that sounds confusing. Well, we do the same thing in English. He says, whatever you should do in word or deed, all in the name of Jesus. There is an implied command in there. There's an, uh, an implied do this. Now, we, when it comes to some texts that we look at, we're like, I don't know, how is that legitimate or not? We do it all the time. If you're married... And your wife comes into, the, into your bedroom, and she says, you can leave your towel there on the floor? She has not commanded anything. She asks a question. But you as a wise, reflective husband know, I think there's an implied command here. Some of you guys are like, wait a second, that's what that's about? I have helped solve some problems. <laughs> yeah, we get it. So when Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, says, whatever you should do in word or deed, all of it to the glory of God, you know that there is an implied, do it all to the glory of God. As one commentator put it, the whole life of the Christian stands under the name of Jesus. I said, what does it mean that we do it in the name of Jesus? We would do it in such a way that it would accord with how a representative of Jesus should conduct himself or herself. You here upon the earth as a God-fearing man or woman who bear the name little Christ Conduct yourself under his name as a representative of his upon the earth. You actually do it also in another sense where his name reflects all that he is, his character and his deeds. And so whatever you do, whether it's the word you say or the deeds you do, it should be in accord with the character of Jesus Christ. There's even a third layer to it. You might say that all that I say and then therefore all that I would then do is extended or uh, expent for the kingdom of the one who is named Jesus. He actually taught us to pray this. Before ever I get to my needs, your kingdom come. All of life you want to know how to waste your life, spend it on you. If you want to live well with all your might, spend it on a kingdom that will endure forever. Spend it on his priorities, his cares, his concerns. The name of Jesus is far more than simply the way that we end our prayers 
It's to be the way that we live the whole of our lives. Rather than just tacking it on at the end of something we pray before we eat, it should be the banner over the way that we live. You don't belong to you. Your days are not rightly called your days. They belong to him. Paul took up this same theme in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Notice again as verse 17 closes, again, the theme of thankfulness. If you were to scan back, and apparently I didn't write it down, he says it at the end of 16, and at 17, and he says it earlier on at the end of 15. In three verses, three different times, he has said the Christian life is meant to be bent Godward in thanks, recognizing all of the way in which we live is for him and all that is in our life is from him. And so the way that we live is not self-absorbed. It's a life of thanksgiving that is lived with all of its might, bent towards his kingdom, knowing this, I'm not my own, but belong to him. And so however many days, few or many, he gives me. I belong to him. Christian, you live that way, you will not waste your life. You live that way, and you will live in such a way as you will have wished you did when you come to die. You will not come to your deathbed and think, you know, I wish I'd spent more on me. You will get to heaven and see the glory of that king and say, all that I spent was worth it and all that I squandered, I grieve it. I don't know how many days God has given each of us individually or how many days until he returns. That is above our pay grade. But what he has revealed is this. Christian, as long as you have life, Blood in your veins and breath in your lungs. Live with all your might. And live knowing this. You belong to him. And him alone. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we pray that you would bind us to yourself. And that you would bind to us the strong name of the Trinity. That we would live all of our days for you. Oh God, forgive us for the times that we've squandered on ourselves, and cause us to be a people transformed by your word. Oh God, we need you. We need your help. Please work in us for your glory, for your name, and for our good do we ask it. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.